HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to Jupiter's Almanac. I'm Matthew Rayford, the great-great-great-grandson of Jupiter Gilliard, a former slave who bought the land I now farm in Georgia nearly 150 years ago. Through the years, my ancestors have passed on some essential and hard-earned wisdom about growing and producing the food we eat. It's my great honor to share that inheritance and to invite other farmers from Georgia and around the country to share their tips with you. It's an opportunity for us to slow down and to connect and to plug in. And the farm does that in a way that lets you connect and appreciate the life that exists and nurture and cultivate that and then extend that to the relationships to the people who are in that house with you and your community. So if you are just starting out, reconnecting with the land, or a seasoned farmer, join the conversation. And to be honest with you, it was like, would Warren come out and say, hey, I want to be a farmer? Probably not. I, I consider myself a city kid. You know, when we initially got a horse, you know, I have that New York City mindset a horse i'm thinking thoroughbred horse aqueduct racetrack <laughs> belmont racetrack those type of things you know and 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 slowly but surely i'm starting to understand a lot more i do remember early on like you know the first month or two of dating how we would daydream about starting a farm together and it's kind of like hold on let's like pump the brakes and get to know each other first and then talk about that you know <laughs> so what got me into chickens? Um, I always joke and say that a chicken saved my life, um, and it very much so did. I'm interested in Black liberation that's ecological and that's not contingent upon <sighs> these systems giving us anything. There's also something that's beyond this that I want and that I seek for our, for our people, and that's intimacy with the land and that's reliability. And so for us, it's also this idea of connecting people back to the land and connecting our um, folks back to their ancestry. So what does it mean to organically, sustainably farm in our current economy and time? Please subscribe to Jupiter's Almanac wherever you get your podcast.
there's a huge breakdown in like this division and community. And I think a lot of it really started with the breakdown of our food system, where if we can bring that back to a food system that was doing just fine for thousands of years, we can rebuild this community aspect, right? We can still bring neighbors together and break bread together because it's, it's vital. It's part of us as humans and as community citizens. Over the past six months, the pandemic has changed a lot about our food shopping habits. At the beginning, demand for certain foods soared, shelves were wiped clean, and mile-long lines formed outside of food banks. But at the same time, we watched as farmers were forced to dump thousands of pounds of milk and plow fresh crops back into the soil. According to the USDA's Economic Research Service, as consumers, we're buying more than we need but we're also throwing out more waste than ever before. Recently, the Midwest Center for Investigative Reporting concluded that in 2017, Americans wasted about 41 million tons of food. That's about 200% more food waste than in 1993. This week, we're exploring the creative strides being taken, both on the large scale and individual level, to avoid excess waste. We visit a driveway in San Jose, California, that has become a hub for stocking up on vegetables and restoring community. Then we head an hour north to Oakland, where a grocery store and cafe is using a circular economy model to promote sustainable shopping. In Brooklyn, we explore how one restaurant created local partnerships to offset their food waste. And finally, we'll turn to a segment of Time for Lunch, where we learn how to preserve our vegetable bounty with an easy pickling recipe. I'm Kat Johnson, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. Our first story this week takes us to the suburbs of San Jose, where Alicia Chan reports on a new bulk buying phenomenon that is bringing community together. Before we begin, I want you to picture a scene. It's the middle of the day, the sky is blue, birds are chirping, and you're outside on a suburban driveway. But instead of cars parked outside, there are vegetables. Piles and piles and piles of fresh vegetables weighed off into two to three pound servings. There's bok choy, cauliflower, pepper squash, and several Chinese moms, all masked and distanced, of course. One of them... Hi. Hi. I'm your mom. Just happens to be my mom. Yeah, my name is Xiaoling. After the pandemic hit, everyone was ordered to stay home, and grocery stores, while essential, became potential hotspots for virus transmission. In May, about two months after the lockdown, a new way of buying groceries spread like fire through the local community on WeChat, a messaging app predominantly used by the Chinese community. It was bulk buying, purchasing a ton of food at once and then splitting that portion with others to score a deal. Compared to buying individual servings, this method saves money and, most importantly, a trip to the grocery store. And this is part of the new process, transferring heaps of vegetables from big cardboard boxes into family-friendly portions, like splitting the check, except instead of Venmo, it's cauliflower. So one pack has more than like 20 pounds or 30 pounds, even 40 pounds. 
a box, same same veggie in a box. So they they can separate this order to like a ten piece, and each one has like a two or three pounds per part or something. <laughs> so so that means we have a big group order, right? And then separate a small group order. Like a waterfall trickling into rivers and streams, the produce flows from these huge orders and splits off into several smaller ones. The woman behind this operation. My name is Zhang Le, Li Zhang. I'm a registered nurse working for San Jose Regional Medical Center. When the pandemic first started and hospitals were in desperate need for protective equipment, the community came together and raised money to donate several boxes of this PPE to Zhang Le's hospital. And around May, she saw an opportunity to give back.、Uh, I call myself a contributor. <laughs> anyway, organize like organizer, right? From contacting farmers about their produce to marketing it on WeChat to final distribution, Zhang Le voluntarily organizes a biweekly bulk buy for her community. This time, we have four four group purchase.、Um, we have、um, the one from wholesaler. We have one from the The farmers for directly, and then we have one from the the restaurant to give the you know the luwei,、uh, and then we have the one、uh, for noodle from the noodle、uh, factory. Four different places provide us the group purchase. This time we purchase about like nine thousand dollars. Yeah, it's over three hundred bucks of different kinds of the food. That's about thirty dollars a box, and depending on the number of people splitting the box, each person generally pays just a few dollars per portion. Customers order whatever they want through an online platform called Jielong. Jielong is、uh, basically the GrubHub of WeChat. Users can view the menu for the week on their phones, select what they want, and then pay directly in the app. So by the time they go to pick up their orders, they already pay because the farmer provide the、uh, the Zeus or PayPal. Uh, the people paying them, and then、uh, you know every every transaction, they just write down what's、uh, what's their、um, order number and their ID, their WeChat ID. So that's why when they come over, we have to match who you are, what you purchase, you know, and then you already pay. Okay, you can pick up. And if you didn't pay, okay, you pay cash to them. COVID nineteen has transformed the way we live our day to day lives. By being quarantined at home, everything blends into one, both physically and mentally. Nothing is just one thing anymore. Home is also the gym and the cafe and the movie theater. And in that same way, this bulk buying is not just a means of obtaining groceries, but also a way of reconnecting a community. Yeah, because of the COVID,、uh, everybody like、uh, isolated at home. So even we can talk,、uh, use the Zoom, use another like online meeting. Or phone or WeChat, but it's still not really kind of face to face. So the people kind of like exciting. Even we covered by mask, right? Some with even glasses, and someone even with the hat. But、uh, to see the people face to face is still exciting. So we we kind of treat like a chance to say hello to the people and to the friend. Yeah, this is another. <laughs> This isn't something we expected. I didn't foresee that going to pick up produce would bring so much joy. But at the beginning of lockdown, no one wanted to go outside. No one had any reason to, you know. 
So with this, they as excuse say, "Oh, I have to go pick up something," and then, "Oh, I can't see my friends," so they have better, a good time to talking to each other and you know, enjoying a little bit over there. As I stood on that driveway, surrounded by hills of vegetables, one thing stood out. In the midst of all the chaos was an abundance of laughter and joking. Friends catching up after months of isolation. The word essential has been tossed around a lot since March. Something or someone that is absolutely necessary. In the Chinese community here in San Jose, new bulk buying methods provide access to essential fresh produce. But I'm wondering if vegetables are the only necessary aspect of bulk buying. Perhaps this sense of community is just as important, just as essential, as a couple boxes of vegetables. Next, Tosh Kimmel speaks with the founders of Mud Lab, a zero waste cafe and grocery in Oakland, California. The unparalleled convenience of consumption in the 21st century has created a culture of passive and wasteful consumerism. But for those of us attempting to subvert this ecologically disastrous model, it can be shocking to realize just how much trash we make in our daily lives. While few businesses cater to a zero waste lifestyle, Mud Lab, a zero waste cafe and grocer in Oakland, California, is offering an alternative to the wasteful consumption habits we've become so accustomed to. It, it seems random at first when you walk in, like, oh, you have used clothing and rice and coffee drinks and olive oil. Like, what does all of this have in common? Um, but when you take kind of the bigger concept of creating a circular economy, um, it all fits together. You know, we're trying to make sure that things are getting reused as many times as they can be before they would have to be either um, recycled or composted or landfilled. And um, we're trying to teach other people that, uh, you know, you can you can reuse things for lots of different purposes. You can, um, you know, buy a shirt that someone else had previously owned that still looks like it's almost new. And um, so, you know, just educating customers about that. That's Jill Holloway, the co-owner of Mudlab. As she explains it, Mudlab is attempting to model a circular economy, a system which recycles resources for as long as possible in an effort to reduce waste and divest from the traditional economic structure. While this may seem ambitious for a coffee shop selling secondhand clothing and locally sourced bulk goods, it all started with a much smaller and simpler idea. So every week we would clean up trash at Lake Merritt and it was just, you know, 99% food trash, straws and to-go things and boba cups and coffee cups. And it was just really sad to see, you know, you use it for 15 minutes and then you throw it away and it ends up in the lake. Um, And so we just, we knew that there was like kind of a crisis going on. That's Vanessa Pope, the founder of Mud Lab. With 40% of plastics produced being single use, the scene Pope witnessed at her local lake is a microcosm of a global issue. Though Pope continued her weekly cleanups, she knew she needed to get to the root of the problem. So we approached a few coffee shops and we found a coffee shop that was willing to go 100% plastic free. And it was called Perch. And they went plastic free Labor Day of 2019. And then after that, we opened up a zero waste grocery store to kind of continue the work that we were doing. 
As a novel concept in a landscape of wasteful business models, going plastic-free was not an easy or quick transition. Mudlab's zero-waste concept functions on the basis of consumers buying in. They invest in their own jars, which they then get a dollar back on when they reuse them at the store. While Pope and Holloway say the majority of their patrons feel excited about zero waste, there are still those that simply just don't understand. You know, it takes some adjustment for customers. We get people sometimes that are, they just want a quick cup of coffee and we, we explain the jar system to them. And sometimes they just aren't ready for it and they walk out the door and they go get a cup of coffee somewhere else. We hung signage for about two weeks and then we talked to people for another two weeks and then we rolled it out. Um, but we realized that unless we took away the plastic cups altogether, people would still ask for them um, because the reusable cups are a little bit more expensive and because remembering a reusable is a little bit harder. Though Mudlab's aim is to be an accessible and affordable zero-waste resource, they're hoping to take their mission even further. Not only by encouraging other businesses to transition to plastic-free, but by serving their community beyond the transactional exchange of coffee and goods. Yeah, building community, it takes time, and it's not always a quick, like, okay, here's your coffee in five seconds, but it it leads to a more of a small-town feel, and I'm from a small town, and so trying to bring a small-town feel to a big city is important to me. By using their space to put on zero-waste events, offering free food to those in need, and partnering with zero-waste businesses and organizations, Pope and Holloway are doing just that, creating community. We'll be right back with more Meet in 3. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome back to Meet in 3. Up next, Matan Dubnikov and Karina Pina-Andriatos bring us a story about a restaurateur who's challenging how we think about excess. The Brooklyn food scene is booming with hip restaurants boasting green meals that are sure to grab the attention and appetites of environmentally conscious eaters. But after the plates are cleared, what happens to the excess and waste behind kitchen doors? Do these advocates of sustainable food actually follow through with their sustainable marketing? Hi, my name is Nama Tamir. I uh, am owner-operator, uh, along with my brother, of Lighthouse Restaurant in Brooklyn, and I'm excited to be on the show. Over the years, young restaurateurs have been placing more value in social and environmental responsibility. Nama is just one example of these driven restaurateurs. 
Through Lighthouse, she planted the seeds of an ethical food movement whose effects have rippled through Williamsburg and beyond. Restaurants have a huge impact on people, on environments, on neighborhoods. There's a large assumption that smaller scale entities don't have the size to initiate change. Naama's zero-waste mission for Lighthouse breaks that mold. She implements creative, sustainable practices in every facet of her restaurant, even before any food enters the kitchen. Well, it started really with, uh, you know, paying attention to how much you're buying and how often you're buying so that you're not overbuying or under, you know, and, and creating waste in that way. So every time we change the menu, um, we create our, say, like our main recipes for like a few of the dishes. And then we also always have specific dishes to deal with what you would call food waste. So whether it's a peel of a, of a vegetable or fruit or it's the stems of the herbs or just any kind of like access, we're creating something that makes sense for the for the restaurant and that really leaves us with a tiny, tiny, tiny amount of waste, which is good on the bottom line. It feels really good when you can kind of like create that that puzzle. And it also helps in, in the bottom line of, of the trash. To use one's excess and make it another's treasure is no easy feat, especially in an industry infamous for cutting corners. I think currently it is a little bit of a challenge. It's, you know, it's kind of like a, a battle hill to do the right thing and you have to like find the right company. And even then there's a good amount of, because, because sustainability has become so popular, there's a, a great deal of greenwashing. Greenwashing is the idea that customers are disillusioned with environmentally forward propositions by companies, but they actually only skim the surface in practice. Nama remains undeterred, however, focusing on the benefits that extend her bottom line. I think the solutions will come and ideas will come. And, you know, it's, it's really just such an exciting thing to be able to do. And your staff becomes so much more loyal because there's a, a mission beyond just making money. I think it's very worthwhile. Community is crucial to Nama's vision for systemic change, where bonds with local entrepreneurs aren't just nurtured, but built from scratch. When Lighthouse first opened its doors, there weren't a whole lot of local entrepreneurs. Now, 10 years later, Nama has built partnerships with individuals far and wide that upcycle the restaurant's waste, whether it be using scraps as fabric dye or food for insecure communities and much, much more. We have someone picking up our corks from the from the wine bottles and they repurpose them to make buoys for boats and, and, and like shoes and all these different things and art and, and whatnot. And then someone actually uses the bottles and cuts them to make them into jars and, and lamps and things like that. So really trying to find all these partnerships for all the things that we are not able to eliminate from the stream and have it be a source of income for someone else. The ripples might still be small, but Nama's fresh approach to excess is paving the way for sustainable eateries to be a thing of the future and food waste to be a thing of the past. This harvest season, you might find yourself with a bumper crop of veggies and a need to preserve them. Do you want to enrich those veggies with new, colorful, and nutritious flavors? Look no further than this excerpt on pickling from HRN's Time for Lunch. Hosts Hannah Forden and Harry Rosenblum explain the many benefits of pickling for you and your family, from preserving produce to gut health. Harry even shares a quick recipe that you can customize by adding in your favorite herbs and spices. So grab your bottle of vinegar and get ready to brine. Welcome back to Time for Lunch. This week, we're learning all about pickles. 
Pickling is a technique for preserving foods by making them more acidic, either through fermentation or by covering them with vinegar. I made some pickled mushrooms the other day, and I love making kimchi and sauerkraut and dill pickles. Ah, that sounds so yummy. This year, I know I am finding I'm pickling a lot because there is so much produce coming my way from the farmer's market, from my CSA share, and it's coming faster than I can eat it. And pickling allows us to save delicious food for later. It's also really good for you because the microbes that make vinegar and that make lactic acid and things like brine pickles and sauerkraut can do a lot for us in our gut health. And they make the food even more healthy by helping our bodies digest and get access to vitamins and minerals that we couldn't if we just ate the raw vegetables. Fascinating. So I'm going to give you a recipe for a basic pickle. You want to use vegetables and you want the freshest vegetables you can get. Today, we're going to talk about vinegar pickling. You want to wash your vegetables and then trim them down to size. Things like cucumbers that we think of as the classic pickle, one trick for keeping them crispy is you want to trim just a little bit off the blossom end. So there's two ends to a cucumber. One side is the stem that attaches to the vine, and the other side is where there used to be a flower, and that is the blossom end. So you want to trim just a little bit off of there, and you want to cut those cucumbers into whatever size you want them to be when you eat them as pickles. Same thing goes for things like beets and carrots or fennel. Smaller or thinner pieces are going to pickle faster. So you get your vegetables, and then you need to choose what kind of flavorings you're going to use. And there's all sorts of things you can use. You can use herbs and spices, garlic, dill, black peppercorns, coriander, celery seed. Those are some of the classics. Hot peppers do really well, but don't use too many because it could be too spicy. Or you could go with flavorings that some people might consider a little more far out. Like a friend recently sent me a picture of some pickles that he made with this recipe using Jamaican jerk chicken seasoning. Or you could use something like Chinese dobanjang, which is a fermented bean paste. So go wild, whatever flavors you like, give it a try. Your basic recipe is going to be to take one cup of water and two cups of vinegar and one tablespoon of salt. And you want to put that into a saucepan on the stove and bring it to a boil. You can add sugar to that if you want to sweeter pickle, but that's your basic brine that is going to acidify the vegetables and make it so that they don't spoil. While you're bringing that to a boil, you want to take your vegetables that you've cleaned and cut up into your sizes. You want to pack those into your jars. You want to use heat safe jars like a mason jar, and you can decide if you want to do a bunch of little eight ounce ones and use them as gifts, or if you want to do one big jar because you're just going to eat it as a whole family. Pack all of your vegetables into your jar and leave about an inch of space at the top, and then put in your spices as well. Put in your garlic cloves and your peppercorns and bay leaves and hot pepper slices, anything you want to put in there. Once the vinegar solution has come to a boil, you want to pour that very carefully into the jar until it just covers the vegetables. Once you've poured your solution in over your vegetables, you want to put a lid on the jar and let it cool, and then you can just keep it in the fridge and eat those pickles immediately. You and your whole family can tune into Time for Lunch on Fridays to learn more about eating, cooking, enjoying, and sometimes playing with your food. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks this week to Alicia Chan, Matan Dubnikov, Karina Pina-Andriatos, Tosh Kimmel, Seth Hartman, Armin Spingen, and Caroline Fox. Meet in Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. 
This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet in 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet in 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or just want to say hello, write to us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out. <laughs>